Hello, and welcome to Sherlock, from Adler to Amberley. An attempt to analyse all 56 of the Sherlock Holmes short stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. In order. Starting with the first story, A Scandal in Bohemia, featuring the celebrated adventuress Irene Adler, and finishing with the final story of the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, The Retired Cullerman, where Holmes and Watson accept the case from Mr Josiah Amberley. Hence, from Adler to Amberley. My name is Carl Kopak, and I'll be presenting this irregular series along with a special guest as we attempt to assess the value of each tale of the canon. An overview, then, of the man with the twisted lip. The story starts in an unusual place, and possibly the only time this happens, it's in Watson's living room. There is no Sherlock at this point. Um, Watson is with his wife late at night, Mary, of course, we know from the sign of four, when they're visited by Kate Whitney, who is a friend of Mary's. She comes in very, very perturbed, distressed, and she says that her husband, Isa, has been away for a couple of days. She rather thinks that he's been using um, opium in an opium den by the docks. He's uh, Isa Whitney has, has a history of this. She asks Watson if he will accompany her down to uh, the um, the vile den and uh, and take him away. And Watson, realising, of course, this is no place for a lady, says, no, I will go alone. He does just that. And when he meets Isa Whitney, uh, Whitney is so stoned and tired, he didn't even realise how long he'd been away. And he says, uh, and he falls into his plans and they, they plan to go home. Just as he's paying, Watson's paying, um, the, the Lascar, the owner of the den, Whitney's bill, uh, he walks past an old man who whispers, who plucks at his skirt, as he says, and whispers, turn around and look back at me. He does so and is stunned to see Sherlock Holmes in a disguise. Holmes and Watson go outside and, uh, once they've walked a few st- uh, streets away, Holmes gets rid of his his his, his um <laughs> his stooped um demeanour, shall we say, straightens himself up and laughs and says, I'm you're the last person I wanted to see I expected to see in there, Watson. And Watson says the reverse is true to you. The reason that Holmes is in there disguised is because he wanted to listen in to the other drug addicts in case they in the in their ramblings told him something about Neville Sinclair. Um, Neville Sinclair's wife has uh, engaged Holmes to find out where Sinclair is. Sinclair is a uh, respectable man uh, who um, doesn't have a job. It sounds like he's more of an investor, but he goes up to the city of London every day from Lee, which is seven miles away from London. And he, um, the last time they went, he went, he promised to buy some toy bricks and building blocks for, um, for, for their children. Later that day, Mrs. Sinclair goes into London because she has to pick up a uh, a package which takes her down um, off the Swandham Lane, up the Swandham Lane, sorry. She's stunned when, she, as she's looking around for the address of the Aberdeen Shipping Company where the package is delivered to, she looks up at a window and sees Neville Sinclair standing in it and he's, he's plucked away almost from behind. She's stunned at this and goes into the building uh, only to find that the Lascar has denied all knowledge of him and there's only the last guy in there, and a man called Hugh Boone is a, who's a filthy, 
disfigured beggar um with uh with a very very strange contorted lip like it's pulled up at one side so his teeth are showing and he's, he's absolutely filthy mrs sinclair is panicking at this of course and um thinks that murder's being done and she spots some blood on a windowsill she opens the window and it leads out onto the thames and she can see neville sinclair's coat so obviously it's looking pretty bad that the lascar and hugh boone have killed him they discover that the coat has been weighed down by hundreds and hundreds of pennies and half pennies, but of course there's no sign of Neville Sinclair's body. Hugh Boone is arrested at once. It's not as highly suggested why the Lascar isn't arrested, but Hugh Boone is, I imagine, because he's a beggar and obviously needed the money. Um, but then we learn something about Hugh Boone. He is basically a beggar who sells... He says he's not a beggar because he sells matchsticks, so therefore he's a tradesman. And um, he's quite a witty man. He occupies the same um, position every day in Threadneedle Street. Holmes even tells Watson later on that, he's, that he says that he's seen him himself. Holmes tells Watson this on the drive back to Lee because uh, they have to stay because um, he's staying in, in uh, Mrs. Sinclair's house, more of which later. When they get there, Mrs. Sinclair, who isn't a fainting um, Victorian woman or anything like that, asks him quite plainly, do you think my husband is alive? And what Holmes says, no, I don't think I don't think he is. So, well, can you please explain why I have a letter from him this day uh, with the red with his wedding ring enclosed, saying you know all will be explained soon. Holmes is absolutely baffled by that because he was convinced he was dead because many people have been killed in that uh, that part of London, and he just thought that he'd been mugged and thrown into the sea, so thrown into the river. Sorry. So, what Holmes and Watson go to bed, or at least Watson goes to bed. Holmes in in a very very popular image of Sherlock Holmes sort of puts a little divan together sits on cushions and smokes all night thinking about what's going on at four o'clock he wakes Watson wakes up and Holmes um tells him that he thinks he's been the stupidest man in London and he's worked it all out and he said I've got the key to the mystery it's in this sponge bag you're taking from the bathroom of course he doesn't tell Watson anything else because that's what he's like um and they go off to uh Bow Street police station to find out what's happened once they're in there, Holmes uh, goes into the cell where Hugh Boone is asleep and um, remarks about just how filthy dirty he is and he opens the wash bag and produces a wet sponge and then rubs his face. As he rubs his face, makeup comes off and we find that the man with the twisted lip, Hugh Boone, is of course Neville Sinclair. The reason for this is because um, Sinclair has been leading a double life for quite some time. He was an actor uh, before he became a newspaper reporter, and once he had to do a an article about begging in the city of London, and was a bit surprised to see that he had loads of cash at the end of the day. A few years later, he um, he backed a bill for uh, for a friend of his and needed to make money quickly, so he donned his makeup and using his skills as a sort of, you know, witty man, um, he found out that he could pay the debt off in a very, very few short days. He then realized, of course, that this is a quick way to make money. And no point does he suggest that every beggar can make tons of money. It's just that he was very good at what he did, very funny. And, uh, he knew what he was doing. There's no murder, of course. So, um, Neville Sinclair has released. Again, there's no crime. And the only crime is that Neville Sinclair has obviously put Mrs. Sinclair in a great deal of discomfort. The man with the twisted lip. Janice Wilson is a writer, trial lawyer and lecturer. For the past several years, she's been a true crime commentator on the Investigation Discovery and Oxygen channels. She's appeared on programmes such as Deadly Affairs, 
evil stepmothers and killer couples. She could be described as a renaissance woman, but she swears she's not that old, and she isn't. She is also a frequent lecturer on Sherlock Holmes, as you'd imagine, Jack the Ripper, and 19th century feminism. She graduated from the University of Memphis with a degree in journalism. As a newspaper reporter, she wrote award-winning articles about the failure of local governments to address inner-city problems, as well as life and women's prisons, and the challenges of providing quality education. It was there also that she obtained the Master of Arts in Political Science. Hoping to combine her love of journalism and politics, Janice moved to Harrisburg in Pennsylvania and resumed her newspaper career. She also spent countless hours in state and federal courts covering investigations, grand jury proceedings and trials. While she was in court, Janice observed the best and worst of trial lawyers. One was so bad that she decided, if he can get through law school, then so can I. And she was right. She graduated from the Temple University School of Law and went on to try cases in Philadelphia and the surrounding counties. Janice has taught continuing legal education courses on litigation strategy, legal writing and professional liability. Her first novel, Goulston Street, is about the Jack the Ripper case. Janice is a student of crimes and investigation into the Ripper and she's also taught a course at Temple University on the famous Victorian era killer. He is a co-organiser of RipperCon, which is an international conference for people who study the case. He's currently at work on her second novel, which is still untitled. She's also a member of the Mystery Writers of America, Sisters in Crime, Guppies, Maryland Writers, The Woodhouse Society, and Sherlockians of Baltimore, so she's pretty busy. She says that she lives without incident in Baltimore with her husband and two rescued cats. Janice, welcome to Sherlock from Adler to Amberley. It's, it's great to have you on the show today. Um, I've just gone through your biography there. There's, there's plenty to, uh, to drill down into. I've got so many questions <laughs> about that. You're, you're very busy for a start. Um, but uh, the, what, the one thing that really stuck out for me was the, um, you going to court and seeing that there's good lawyers and bad lawyers. Um, and that inspired you to become, uh, you know, a court lawyer yourself. Um, can you give us an example of the bad lawyers? Oh, there are so many from which to choose, but <laughs> I was uh, in court one day when a man had been found guilty of the rape and murder of a four-year-old girl. It was, as you can imagine, a very sensational case. Yes. And he had been sentenced to death. And after that occurs, the court, the judges review the pleadings and try to determine whether the death penalty should have been imposed. And while the young lawyer is standing there talking, one of the judges is fumbling around with his papers. And finally, he says, I'm sorry to interrupt you, counsel, but I can't find your brief on this subject. And he said, I didn't know I was supposed to write one. And I leaned over to the reporter sitting next to me and said, I was born knowing if you're trying to save your client's life, you should at least put it in writing. I think that's probably wise, yeah. <laughs> and he went to a, a good law school, so I figured if he could do it, I can do it, and I enrolled that summer. Good, good lords. This gives me hope in so many things in my life. <laughs> that, that I can do things like that. That, that that is literally frightening. There, there's a comedian over here called Bob Mortimer who um, once said on a podcast he, he was um, he was a solicitor for a while, and he said um, he once accidentally forgot to sign the deeds of a house. 
and, and had to go over to his client and say, can you just sign this form? Because literally otherwise the house would have been theirs, free. They would have gone in. He decided not long after that, maybe law isn't for him, and he moved on to comedy instead. Um, you're also, um, obviously, we know you from your um, uh, your true crime documentaries. Um, I'm, I'm very, very intrigued also that uh, you're a member of the Woodhouse Society. What, what, what does that entail exactly? And by the way, I, sh- I should tell you, I, ca- I can bore for England about the Jews and Buster stories. So, oh. uh, they're some of the greatest stories ever written, and, and Woodhouse is unmatched when it comes yes. to humor. Um, yes. But what happens is, um, like-minded people get together and review various stories or watch old films from the stories, which never do them justice. The Jeeves and Worcester series was excellent, but the old films are terrible when it comes to recreating Woodhouse. Yeah, yeah. And they get together uh, in various cities. They just met this year in Cincinnati. They also met recently in Washington and Philadelphia. And they move about the country and have conferences every couple of years. And it's just they dress up as characters from the 20s, and it's really just delightfully insane. The, the problem I've got with, with televised um, Jews and Worcester stories, and I, I love the Stephen Fry story, you know, with, with Hugh Laurie. Um, they yes. work particularly well together, and obviously the Ian Carmichael version as well. But I, I think the problem with televising it is because the best lines in Woodhouse are the ones in Bertie's head, which you don't get to hear on television. You just follow the action. Which is all nonsense about cow creamers and you know, <laughs> es- escaping into, um, you know, accidentally breaking into uh, Lady Florence Cray's room and therefore having to marry her just because of that. And that, 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 you know, that's the action part of it, but it's nothing as funny as his language. Um, and there, there, there's, once I really discovered P.T. Woodhouse, I, I mean, I still use the term, um, I've got to get outside some bread and cheese when I mean I want to eat a cheese sandwich. And you don't really get that within the stories. It's just, it's just too golden, his viewpoints. Jeeves, I shall go into the garden and perform pastoral dances. That's just, exactly. that's and I was just me. having the morning eggs and bee. The eggs and bee, yeah. Unchain, like unchain the eggs and bee. Unchain them. That, that's beautiful to me. Oh, man, I, I could talk to you about PG Woodhouse all day, but I think people want to hear about Sherlock Holmes. Um, All right. When did you um, when did you first discover the Sherlock Holmes stories? Well, in my misspent youth, I had fallen in love with the idea of Jack the Ripper, but my mother would not allow me to pursue that in, that field of study. She thought that I was too young to know anything about murder and too young to know anything about prostitutes. But I have, but I had fallen in love with the Victorian era because of that, and then one day. Uh, an old movie came on television. I, it was The Hound of the Baskervilles. And of course I, I was smitten and I said to myself, I wonder if this Conan Doyle fellow might have written anything else. And to my delight, he had. And I looked up, uh, the Wisteria Lodge because Wisteria is my favorite flower and because it reminded me of the wonderful Nancy Drew novel. The Mystery of the Lilac Inn. Oh, okay, yeah. And I thought, okay, well, this guy knows about mysteries. He knows about horticulture. And so I read that story and went on from there. Excellent. I, I um, 
I, I came, I say this, I came quite late to them. And the first story I read isn't a particularly good one in my, in my view. Um, which, uh, John, uh, producer John here and I have already discussed, which was a case of identity. Oh, yeah. Um, so, so I'm always intrigued that you, uh, you, the people come in through, you know, the really big stories. And I came in with quite a nondescript story, but I, but I was still hooked at the same time. Um, obviously this week we'll be discussing the man with the twisted lip. Um, I, I asked this question with, uh, with, with bated breath, really, just in case it goes wrong for me. What did you think of it? What's your, what's your view of it? Well, it's not Conan Doyle's best work by any stretch of the imagination, but it does resound with themes from the Holmes stories. Um, it talks about people who aren't what they seem. Certainly yep. Hugh Boone wasn't what he seemed to be, yep. but neither was Sherlock Holmes. Because when we encounter him in the story, he has gone undercover in an opium den. Yeah. There's also a great deal of ambiguity in the story. Watson has repeatedly reprimanded Holmes for his drug use. But yes. when he encounters him in an opium den, he calmly follows Holmes' instructions. <laughs> exactly. You would think that, that Watson, being a, a physician who had warned him about using cocaine, would pick up his stick and start beating Holmes. Which <laughs> is what I'd say. But, but that didn't happen. Another focus, of course, is the importance of maintaining a good reputation. Now, yeah. the police allow St. Clair to leave the jail once he promises he'll never be a beggar again. This reminded me of Sir George Arthur, who you recall was a very briefly a suspect in the Ripper murders. Yep. Because he was found chatting up some prostitutes in Whitechapel. And I believe he was wearing a slouch hat at the time. But in any event, he was seen talking to prostitutes in Whitechapel. And he was arrested immediately. And he told the police, go to my club and they'll vouch for me. And since he was a gentleman, they went to this gentleman's club, which had an entirely different meaning in the 19th century than it does now. And they said, do you know this chap? And they said, oh, yes, he's a good fellow. And so the police went back and just released him immediately without a buy or leave. So the class difference is very important there. And, um, and of course, he was also very much focused on maintaining a good reputation. Yeah. Uh, St. Clair was, it, it was interesting that there are three women in this story, uh, two women in the story who are very important to it, although they don't play major roles. But St. Clair, says he's not worried about his chicanery becoming known to his wife. He doesn't want to embarrass his children if word gets out that he makes his living yeah, as a that. And, of course, there's the Lasker. Yeah. And it's just assumed that he's a ne'er-do-well because not only is he running an opium den, but he's a Lasker. Yeah, I, I, I do believe he's foreign. That's exactly right. And yeah. Conan Doyle knew in the 19th century, that that was shortcut for he's not on the up and up. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I'm, what, I'm, what British gentleman is going to be running an opium den? Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's, there's, um, I'm, I'm trying not to talk about future stories, but there's a very similar incident uh, in The Dying Detective uh, much, much later where, um, where Corbett and Smith has to take his, uh, his brattish younger brother 
uh, down to Limehouse to go and work on there, to, you know, to take him on board. And he holds a scented like, handkerchief to his nose. And although that's frowned upon in the story, it's not that frowned upon <laughs> in the story because, because they're Chinese workers and, you know, from, well, from Southeast Asia in general. And there's a little bit of, you have to avoid these people because they're not like us. There's, there's a little bit of element in that too. And so it's, it obviously the, the fear from this, from where Watson goes into the opium den is because not, it's not the fact that they're drug addicts. It's the fact that they're, there's a threat of violence because these are supposedly violent people. Quite right. Holmes specifically says that they would be rich if they had money for every man who yeah. had been done to death yeah. in that den. Yeah, uh, which is a link, obviously, with um, our mutual friend, where uh, obviously where the, where the body goes to, through a window and into the tents it's in the same yeah. area. It, it's a. Um, I, I should say at this point that I absolutely love the man with the twisted lip. I love the fact that once again, there's no actual crime. Yeah. Um, which is a, which is a, 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 I go through this every time we do one of these shows. In the first six or seven um, stories, there's only two crimes I can think of. Uh, which is the Red-Headed League and the Boscombe Valley Mystery, and yep. he lets the, the murderer go. This one, I, I like the fact that it, it's now become a theme at this point in, in, the, in the adventures of Sherlock Holmes where there is no crime, but it's just an interesting moral dilemma. So it's, it's, so his detective work isn't just criminal detective work. It's a, I want to know what the story is, and then just leave it, which I think is a really interesting thing for him to do. Well, that's true. It's... It's delicious in that Watson goes to bed, and that's when Holmes really goes to work. Yeah. He sits quietly, smoking and thinking, and we can see him eliminating the impossible, yeah. which leaves whatever is left, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. Yeah. And in fact, there's... Watson is not needed in this story at all, except for exposition and to praise Holmes. Yes. Because if you go back and review the story, all the clues are there before Watson is dis- is brought into it at all. Yeah. Yeah, and he's also halfway through the story as well. Holmes is, Holmes is doing it before Watson joins in. That's correct. Yeah, it's it's not, it's not a standard Baker Baker Street scene where a guest comes in, a client walks in, say this has happened, and they go out and solve it. I like the fact that Holmes is already doing it while Watson's reading in his you know <laughs> reading his book in the middle of the night. That's right. And when, and then Holmes says that he's been stupid, which of course is far from true. No, he just hasn't got there yet. I think there's a difference there. Uh, because, I mean, it, you're right, the process of elimination is, is there should be three people in this room, but there's only two. What happened to the other one if we can't find him? Well, the only logical explanation there, and it's not that logical, is that one person must be two people. And therefore he finds out because of the, because of the twisted lip and the, you know, the, the hideous dirt and makeup and what have you. Um, but it really says, you know, he's been quite stupid. I, I still wouldn't have got there at that point. And I know that's the point of the story because he's a genius and everything, but I thought that was a really interesting uh, little little bit in that when he's um, sat up in his Indian divan and it suddenly dawns on him that it's not three people, there's only two, but one of them's pretending to be the other person. And interestingly, Holmes credits Watson 
for assisting him, he said, you have a grand gift for silence, Watson. I love that line. I love that line so much. You make quite an, it makes you quite invaluable as a companion. Well, that's pretty condescending. It is. But I sort of understand it at the same time. Because he, I think he says in a later story as well that, um, I, I like you to bounce my ideas off and, um, because, and, and Watson says, like, couldn't you do that to, like, you know, your pipe? And he says, no, because I want you to react. But it, well, what, but what he doesn't want is Watson's opinion. Hardly ever. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> because Watson's opinion, as we know, I mean, this man has an MD. Yeah. And yet he never offers any useful information. Yeah. It's, it's very, it's only in things like, you know, um, if somebody collapses in front of them or, you know, they, or there's a body and, and Watson can find out how long they've been dead or something like that. We, we do a thing on this program called, um, Watson Watch. Um, which is, uh, uh, what does Watson do in this story? I think, you know, just to go back to that, you're absolutely right. So he basically, I mean, he does a very, very good thing. The best thing Watson does in this story is help Kate Whitney. That's the nicest thing he does. And that every, is, anything else is just a notepad. The, it's the only thing he does, yeah. but, but both Mrs. Watson and Dr. Watson come to her aid. There's a great deal of assisting the female in this story, but what's really interesting in this story, and I don't recall seeing it in any other, is when a woman outsmarts Holmes. Yeah. And that's when Mrs. St. Clair said she she draws him in like a trial lawyer. She gets him to admit that he's formed an opinion as to the case. She gets him to admit that he believes her husband to be dead. He won't go so far as to say he's been murdered, but she gets him to admit these two things. Yeah. And then she produces physical evidence that proves that her husband is, in fact, alive. And I love I've that never, scene. I've never known a woman to outsmart Sherlock Holmes in the canon, with the exception, of course, of the woman I read. The woman, yeah. It, it's it's interesting because the way she does that, it's because she, you're right. The tri- trial lawyer is a really good example because she absolutely leads him down the path. I believe that you think this is that correct? Yes. Then you also believe this, this, and this. And by the way, here's the huge evidence to say that you're wrong. The outstanding evidence of there it is. I think that's really interesting. I think the women in this story are really interesting because, again, we, we've said before, a lot of these stories around that time is very sort of, you know, we, I know this is a bit too soon for this, but, you know, women tied to a rail track for the hero yeah. to come along and rescue them. And they're not really like that in this story, in, in, in a lot of early homes in particular. Well, when Mrs. Watson comes to the aid of her friend, she doesn't stand wringing her hands and says, oh, I can't send my husband away to an opium den. Yeah. What, what will happen to me? Yeah. She, uh, she, at the very beginning of the story, doesn't want him to have to go out on a call. And yet when she sees a friend is in need, she's happy to see her husband go and, and help her. She, she's practically pushing him out the door with his coat in his hand. That's quite right. Yeah. And, and also, I think there's also a little bit to be said that given the times and given people's stations in life, um, 
for, for Kate Whitney to even go and knock on the door is quite a bold step. It's because, nighttime and she's alone. Yeah, that's a huge thing. And, you know, she could just go to the police, but obviously she doesn't want to go to the police because of where he is. And um, th- there's a whole stretch of this of this part of the story where basically the men are useless. It's all because a man's being useless anyway. Um, by being, you know, by being, you know, committed to, um, to opium smoking because of, you know, Thomas De Quincey and what have you. Yeah. And I like the fact that the women have just come along and said, right, solve, we're going to solve all this. You get out of the house now. You go and sort this out straight away. But there's also, there's a, there's a connection with this. Obviously, we, we had Leslie Klinger on for the last story, Five Orange Pips. And I've been reading uh, the annotated Sherlock Holmes. And there's a commentator on that who says about when, um, Holmes says to Watson, send a note back, um, uh, through the guy, imagine through John the cabman, that, um, you've thrown in your lot with me and now we're going to do this. Um, somebody says, is that the end of their marriage? Because that's a very, very strange thing for Watson to do. I've just gone to this opium den. It's very, very dangerous out there. And now I'm staying out all night with my mate because he's asked me to. And it's that's not me. just any opium den. It's, an opium den where people have been done to death. Yeah, by being killed, yes. And now I'm out all night trying to sort this out. I mean, I think I'd want to at least see my wife before I said, that. okay, this has happened, we're going to look into it now, but I'm safe, don't worry about it. And that's that's very ungallant of John to do that, really. And he's not really like that. He's supposed to be, you know, this charming Victorian gentleman. But, um, which, which makes me think, and this comes up a lot in the future stories, I know. Which one's he married to, Janice? Well, he's married to Mary Marston. But is he married to Holmes more? Because that's what it seems like to me. Because obviously he's with Holmes because of the excitement. But his wife is just a footnote. Even though we've, we've, we've met her before, she's very, very strong, very forthright lady. Um, and, you know, and she's strong enough to say, John, get out of your chair. I don't care what time it is. Kate needs your help going to it, no matter how dangerous it is. And then he sort of throws it away a bit in this as well. It's, it's a very strange thing. I think, obviously, again, I think I've mentioned this on every episode so far. It could be because she calls him by the wrong name. Oh, that made me crazy. I mean... It's, it's the big one, isn't it? It's the, big, it's the biggest mistake in the whole thing. If my character, Lady Sarah Gray, became Lady Caroline Gray <laughs> one of my stories, I would sue my editor in a heartbeat. I mean, that is unforgivable. Yes, it is. It is. And I, I absolutely love, I absolutely love it at the same time. I also like, I said this to Leslie last time, I love the fact when people try and justify it in a way. So, oh, oh, he meant this. And it's the whole, um, because his middle name is Hamish, which is James in English. Maybe it's a nickname. No, it's a terrible, terrible mistake from a great writer. <laughs> yes. That's all it's it is. Let's, name let's, not, let's begins... not pause this anymore. It's the first name that begins with J. And Conan Doyle simply made a mistake, and the editor didn't catch it and left it for the world to laugh about. Yeah, which is absolutely magnificent. And, and I've, I've, I can't remember seeing this, but I've heard of it that um, um, James Moriarty, Professor Moriarty, Professor James Moriarty's brother, is also called James. I think that might be in the Valley of Fear. I do need to check that up, but I've read that somewhere that he also misnames his own brother. So. Mr. and Mrs. Moriarty had two sons, both called James, which I don't think they did. 
No, that that would be very unfortunate to say nothing of confusing. <laughs> and they can't they can't be stupid people because bearing in mind that their son's a professor. <laughs> and the Napoleon of crime. And the Napoleon of crime, yeah. He's um I think he, he would uh I think he he might complain. Well, why not just call him something else other than James? So, but I love the fact that um, obviously Conan Doyle is is famed for this. Uh, Trevor Bond and I spoke about you know there's lots of date inaccuracies in um, uh, the Red Headed League where suddenly eight months ago it was October when it wasn't or something like that. And this is not to take away the genius of the stories, but I no. love little things like that. It's, it, it, it actually improves them in some ways. I love the fact he's he's obviously gone. Uh, needs a name. He's Jay Watson, isn't he? Let's go with James, even though he's been John for at least half of the stories by that point. Well, I take your point about the closeness between Holmes and Watson. Yeah. But remember when this is being written, this is 1891, and what's on in the newspapers at that time? The Oscar Wilde trial. Yeah. And these are two adult men who are sharing a flat. Yeah. So it's I, ha- I, ha- I have a double bed there, he says. Yeah. That's right. It's entirely possible that Mrs. Watson was created simply to, to dissolve any issue as to whether there were shenanigans going on between Holmes and Watson. Yeah. I think, I think that's being put there on purpose. It's very much like the, I mean, I'm no fan of these, but, um, the Lord of the Ring films. Uh, again, someone will correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, the very last scene, uh, sorry, the very last film, um, Frodo's friend Sam gets married just to prove that they're both heterosexual. Again, I could be wrong on it, but I remember reading that when the last film came out. Um, incidentally, producer John here has just made a very good point that, um, at one point, um, Moriarty's called Colonel James Moriarty within the stories as well. <laughs> so, uh, and we know that Watson served in the military. Yes. Just to, uh, to just to correct that, Colonel James Moriarty is the brother. Um, oh, in the sorry. problem, Moriarty's only ever referred to as Professor Moriarty, and James Moriarty is his brother in the final that's problem. That's what I'm saying. I see your point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sorry. that makes sense. <laughs> no, that's fine. We're leaving that in, John. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there's um, Professor James Moriarty, and of course Colonel James Moriarty, his brother. Presumably, there's another brother, or, a, or even a, even a a sister called James as well. <laughs> we don't know. But um, just as moving on to Neville Sinclair, um, one of the things that... I mean, I, I love this story because mostly... One of the main reasons is because I um, I do a lot of work around Threadneedle Street. And um, so I know, you know what the area is like, etc. So that brings it all home to me. As indeed the Ripper stuff does to me because I, I live not far from the East End. And I did a podcast at the weekend with a friend of mine um, which is actually not a, a, a history podcast, it's a football one, saying the reason I, I'm really interested in the Ripper case is that you can actually go and stand in Mitre Square, um, yes. which is a very quiet place. And 130 years ago, it was like the epicenter of the criminal world. It was absolutely infamous, and now it's not. And I really like that sort of, that touch of the past, really. But um, there are beggars around, around Bank. There's, there's less so now around Threadneedle Street. And... Um, Given, I, I completely accept the fact that, um, Neville Sinclair has a, has a feel for, you know, sort of banter and, um, you know, sort of music hall type humor and, um, you know, can entertain people and therefore gets a few extra shilling where other people wouldn't. But is he really carrying five pounds worth of change that day in his coat? 
Five pounds is a lot of money in 1891. Could he really be carrying that much? Uh, I don't know enough about British currency at that time. Well, I'm, but... I'm just thinking that because it, it, it was 4D to, to, to rent a, um, uh, for, for, for a DOS in Whitechapel, a mile away. Well, it's no wonder he was limping if he was carrying that much <laughs> yes, paper around. But the, the interesting thing to me about Sinclair was that Conan Doyle went out of his way to say how hideous he was. Yeah. The man had a scar on his face, and we all know that people who are well-to-do prefer to look away from beggars in the street. Yes. They don't want to take, they don't want to look at them, they don't want to know about them. This but one of the great ambiguities in this story is that Sinclair disguises his face so that people won't look at him, and yet he quotes Shakespeare to them and engages in witty banter, yeah. which draws their attention to such a degree that he is well known in that area. Kind of defeats uh, the purpose. Even, even to Holmes. Holmes says that he's seen him. Yes. And, and it's, he's not, he's not exactly, you know, next door to, to Threadneedle Street. And this is, so not only is he recognized him, he's, he's actually committed him to memory. Which is an extraordinary thing to do. John, John's just made the point that five pounds uh, then is, uh, 640 pounds today. And I don't know how long he's supposed to have collected that money. But I can tell you that part of one of my uh, roles in my job, I'm a fundraising manager, so I organise charitable connections. And I don't get £640 in a day, and I collect around bank. And I haven't got a twisted lip. And it's not, and it's not Victorian times, I don't think I have anyway. And it's not Victorian times. So I think, again, for the for poetic licence, it works, and who are we to argue? Because it's, I, I mean, as I said before, I love this story. But I think he's gone a little bit over the top there, to be honest. But well, it's, it's, there's also a link is also, I mean, as I said, he says in the story, like, you know, I'm not saying any beggar can go and collect this amount of money and, you know, buy a house, buy a villa in Lee in southeast London based on this. And yet he does. That's a stretch for me. Well, I heard a story and it very well may be apocryphal about an American man who appeared to have a limp was begging on the streets, and at, and he was watched for a period of time. And at the end of the day, around 4.30 in the afternoon, he'd empty all the change out of his hat, put it into his pockets, walk around the corner, and climb into a waiting Cadillac. <laughs> so if the story is true, it can be quite profitable. Yeah. Even if you have a twisted lip. Yeah, and, uh, and and I imagine also, um, see, th this is another thing. If that was me, and I thought I'm a very very respectable man, and uh, and I'm sorry if this sounds like I'm I'm picking holes in, in a story which I couldn't even begin to write. Um, if if that was me, and I thought I've got to go and get changed somewhere, I need a room, which means I'm going to have to um, confide in somebody. I'm not sure I'd go to a man who runs, you know. A, a building where people are killed. That wouldn't be my first port of call. 
Well, perhaps if he is as respectable as we are led to believe, he wouldn't know the history of the opium den other than it is an opium den, which was not illegal. Yeah. No, they weren't. No, no, not at all. Um, it's, um, I, I just think I'd probably put some money into a hotel. I wouldn't think, where is the rankest place I can possibly be in London? Because he can't be that naive, surely. I mean, actually, he was, uh, like yourself, he was a newspaper person. But he's not naive, he's careful. Yeah. He can't go up with this dark face and this hideous appearance and ask for a room in a good hotel. Yeah. This is the kind of man who, if he visited a house, would have to go to the back door because he wouldn't be admitted through the front. Yeah. To maintain that appearance, he has to go to a very seedy, dark place where there are no questions asked. When Watson arrives at the opium den, the Lasker just walks up to him with a a filled pipe. No, no questions. How did you find me? Who are you? What are you doing here? Are you the police? Yeah, ultimately. That's exactly right. He just hands it over to him. That's true. I mean, there's a very, um, just, just to go on to, to a slight ripper curve here. I'm, I'm really interested in the George Hutchison story, um, about, um, I don't know what this is. George Hutchison claims he saw the, he saw, uh, the murderer, uh, Jack the Ripper, um, on Commercial Street the night of the last murder, and he said he saw her with, with somebody who was dressed like a toff, all very, all well done up and everything. And I often make the point that if a man dressed like that was walking down Dorset Street, the worst street in London it was known as, um, he'd been mugged twice before he crossed the road. Pretty much. That was the, uh, that was what it was like around then. Um, I, I said in one of my blogs that it's, a, it's the equivalent of dressing as a, as a vampire and walking through a council estate. You'd, you'd be noticed. Um, <laughs> That's Sorry, right. Yeah, dressed, dressed up as a vampire walking walk through a council estate. Um, and I just think, I mean, I, I fully, um, I agree with you. He'd have to go into that sort of world to change so no one knows who he is, etc. I would just go somewhere a little less murdery <laughs> if I was him. I, I would certainly do that. It, it's, it's almost like saying, you know, I'm just going to put up this, uh, this, this nice, um, shop in Flower and Dean Street in Whitechapel, which is practically feral. In its, um, in its, in its criminality, because it had to be, because, you know, the times they lived in. Um, well, but, he, uh, but at the same time, I really, really like Neville St. Clair, because I like the fact that he's interested in his children, and he knows what he's doing is wrong, but he, and he freely admits that he's, be, that the moral dilemma he's faced, um, he, he, he gave into. He knew it was wrong, but he just thought, I, I just, I can just do this for a while, and, it's not great. It's also a huge comment on people who genuinely were begging, because he didn't need to do it, which is incredibly cruel. Yes. Um, and at, uh, and the only person who's really wronged in this story, apart from the people who've given him money when he doesn't need it, is again his wife. That's the crime, isn't it? That's the crime in this story. His it wife is. is petrified. And even that's sort of glossed over. He's so high. That he doesn't even know what time it is. He doesn't know what day it is. Yeah. He thinks he's been there one day, which is bad enough and trying enough on his poor wife and children. Oh, you mean Isaac Whitney? Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah that's I, I, right. But yeah, the, the women but are. Saint Clair, are so, so, yeah. St. Clair is crafty. He's not necessarily wise. Yeah, exactly. 
he has been ripping a lot of people off, but the law says that it's okay to rip those people off. So basically, he's been taking money out of other beggars' mouths when they genuinely do need the money. Oh, <laughs> yes. Because, he's done is because he's unforgivable. Yeah. And, of course, he's been lying to his wife for this five years or whatever it is he's been doing it. Yes, and it, it's, it's similar to opium use. He says, I can quit begging at any time. Yeah, exactly. To do it. I also got the impression that if he was a bit short of cash one day, even though he's made this promise, the makeup might come on again at some point, and he'll, you know, the man with the twisted nose or something next. Uh. <laughs> Just because I think it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very similar. They are Isaac Whitney and Sinclair are very very similar. It's just that one is frowned upon more than the other. Well, I think if he decided to try it again, he would become the man with the broken nose because his yeah. wife would see to it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's just, it's just, it's a strange story in as much as, um, uh, well, one thing I love about the story is the fact that the whole washing bag, the bathroom bag as well, I have the key here, wash it, what's in this bag here. And I like the fact that, um, it's like that scene in the, the, the Steve Martin film, Roxanne. Where Roxanne's locked out of her, um, her house, and Steve Martin, as the you know Bergerac to Bergerac um, character, takes this little sort of um, almost like a Gladstone bag along uh, with all the with all the tools in it to get into the house, and he opens it, and it's just a it's just a credit card on its own, and he opens the whole store with a credit card, but he takes the big bag with him just for that. And what's what's it, Holmes doesn't just say, right, I'm here now at Bow Street, can I have a sponge? No, no, I've got to take it, and I've got to pick, I've got to put it. I've got to wrap up in a secret. I know it's because of the, you know, the dramatic license and everything. But, well, that's uh, right. It is the only action that Holmes takes, and yeah. Watson, of course, as always, tags along. But it's the only real action, and it's also an important scene because it shows the deference to the detective. If I went to the local jail and said. Uh, I'd like to go and talk to the local beggar. Would you just open the cell and let me in? With the bag. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's exactly right, without searching the bag. <laughs> he, he has brought with him the tools to solve the crime, and he reaches into his bag, takes something out of it. I'm sure the cops didn't immediately focus on the fact that it was grunge, and he just reaches over and washes the man's face. And they just stand by and let him lean over yeah, exactly. the <laughs> So this potential murderer, I'm just going to go into the cell if this is okay with you and put my hand right on his face. Is that okay? Absolutely, Mr. Holmes. Knock yourself out. <laughs> well, Holmes was a gentleman, which goes yeah. back to my earlier point. There yeah. is a great deal of class distinction in this case. We see this a lot in, uh, what story is it? Is it The Noble Bachelor? Uh, with, uh, with, is it Kitty Miller? Where, where, um, Lestrade has to interview her and because she's like a common working girl, he's so horrible to her. Um, and, um, I think it's the, yes, it's The Noble Bachelor. And, um, whereas with everybody else, it's mom, this, uh, this, that, etc. But the police treat her so much differently, even though she's one of the few people in the story who is, is genuinely wronged. Um, 
and Conan Doyle doesn't apologise to her either. It's just like you know, you 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 need this. This this is just your this is your station in life. This well, is that, what you are. That's right. But you and I both know from studying Whitechapel that these women did not, as they say, choose this life. No. They chose to continue to eat and have a place to sleep, and that's the only choice they made in turning to that life. Yeah. And yet society is looking down on them, and Lestrade, who is no great shakes anyway, thinks he has the right to insult and abuse her. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, it's just, it, it is such a great story, though. I do, I do genuinely love this story. Just because it's, it's silly. I love the big mistake, the, the James John mistake. Um, I, I love the whole thing about the moral dilemma of, you know, if, if you can get quick money, would you do it? And he does. And, um, I like the fact that the women are more virtuous than the men. There's yeah. also a suggestion somewhere that of how did Holmes get the case? And is there a bit of flirtation going on? With Mrs. St. Clair. I'm not I, convinced by that myself, but I think she's just strong. And, I agree and, with you and, completely. And Holmes, Holmes is quite cowed by it. Holmes was offered the thing that Holmes wants most in the world, and that is not sex. It's an opportunity to use his mind. Yeah. And the fact that a woman entreats him to do so is all the more magnetic. Yeah. And this is another case of where a, a woman asking for help simply cannot be denied. Yeah. Just as Mrs. Mrs. Uh, Whitney. Kate, Kate Whitney, yeah. Yes. She needed help. Watson gave it to her immediately. No questions asked. Yeah, because that's what you do. Exactly. Especially in that era. Yeah. I just think but I, I don't see a romantic connection between Holmes and anybody. No, but I, I, I don't know. There's, there's, there's nothing at all. And that's suggested quite a few times. But uh, one of the things that really annoys me, Janice, about, about literature in general is that if you watch pretty much any um, any film these days or any TV series, if there's an attractive man in it, an attractive woman, by the end of the third act, they have to be together. Otherwise, it's no longer a story. And I think that's one of the things that, that to go back to P.G. Woodhouse, that's the one thing I absolutely love about, uh, about, um, the Jews and Wooster stories is normally there's a happy ending with a wedding where the entire premise of Bertie Wooster is to stop him getting married. And I think maybe that's why I like it because obviously his biggest threat is, is, um, oh god, I've forgotten their name. Madeline Bassett. Yes. He's the, he's the, he calls the very, very soupy girl who, uh, believes that bunny rabbits talk. And think, and you know, he's got to do everything he can to to avoid getting married to her because that was an age where if she said, "Okay, I, I think we should get married," then he has to fall in with that plan straight away because you know he, I don't quite understand why that is. And I, I think I just love the thing I love about home is more than anything else is there's none of that. What what's in is the romantic um, because he is quite a charming man and you know he is a gentleman and um, he is also very good. It should be said with you know serving girls he's he's less on, on the class thing um but a lot of that's because he knows that homes can be brutal and he doesn't want to hurt anyone's feelings but well, a good I lo- example a good example of that is when he shows up at mrs st Clair's home uninvited yeah Holmes absolutely 
Holmes just says, I brought him along. Well, <laughs> I have to tell you, if somebody dropped a house guest in on me, I would not be too pleased. Um, and so she begins to say to him, if there's anything wanting in the room that I'm providing to you that I never invited you to, yeah. he stops and assures her, no, everything is fine. And besides that, as he puts it, I'm an old campaigner. Well, I'm not sure I would appreciate as a hostess being told, you know, I've bivouacked before so I can stomach living here. Yeah. Outside London. Yeah. Here in the sticks. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I never thought of it that way. That's absolutely true. And also, I, I'm just glad she didn't say, so, so where, where were you tonight, Dr. Watson, before you came here? Ah. I was just sort of in an opium den in the East <laughs> If that's okay. Any friend of Sherlock Holmes is a friend of mine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, have you got any cushions? Yeah, because he's going to take all the cushions. And uh, also, I'll be I'll be leaving at four a.m. without without telling you that I've gone. Because they they leave at four in the morning. That's another mistake. Actually, I I read that on Wikipedia where um, he says the sun's shining at four twenty in the morning. No, it isn't. (laughs) <laughs> the sun's never shining at 4.20 in the morning. It might be a little bit lighter than it usually is, but... Uh, the only that, shining at that point is Holmes' intellect. Yeah, yeah. That, that's all you've got. And even then, he's not sharing it all with you because he's protecting that uh, that washing bag. <laughs> well, that's right. Plus, he also has already been bested by Mrs. St. Clair. Yeah. He doesn't want to say to her... I think your husband is hiding in a jail. Yeah. He wants to make sure this time so he can't be embarrassed again. Yeah. Yeah, because also, what would have happened had he been wrong? Um, it wouldn't look too good to, to Bow Street when he just walks in and just cleans this tramp's face and says, yeah, I just thought he needed a wash. And then, <laughs> and then head back to, uh, head back to Lee again. But, but massively, it didn't come to that. We had a good story. Um, Janice, we're just coming up to the hour. Um, it's been great having you on. Um, I ask every guest this question. Um, I assume that you like the man with the twisted lip. I'm taking that from that. Um, would you come on and discuss a story that you don't like in the future? And if so, what would it be? Ooh, that's a toughie. Um, maybe the Wisteria Lodge? I'm booking, uh, I'll, book you, I'll book you in for Wisteria Lodge. All right, that would be lovely. I Excellent. I have the same intestinal fortitude as Mrs. St. Clair, so I'll take it on. <laughs> That's fantastic. Janice, thank you so much for doing this podcast. It's been an absolute joy, and I'm so pleased that we got to discuss this. Thank you very much. Thank you. I had a great time. I would like to thank our host at Rippercast as well as producers Jonathan Mengus and John Rees. A special thank you too to Andrew Firth, who created both the graphics and the theme music. You can contact us on Twitter at Adler to Amberley. Thank you for listening.